Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a pleasure and a privilege to introduce Dr. Backrack and Dr. Shapiro, who are going to be discussing Dr. Backrack's recent paper, Decreased Fracture Incidence After One Year of Formidinate Treatment in Children with Spastic Quadriplegic Cerebral Palsy. This is coming up in the September issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. Dr. Backrack is co-director of the Cerebral Palsy Program at the Department of Pediatrics in the Alfred DuPont Hospital for Children, uh, Nemours Children's Clinic, Wilmington, and also part of the pediatric faculty of Thomas Jefferson University, Philadelphia. Dr. Shapiro is the director of the Bone and Osteogenesis Imperfecta Program at Kennedy Krieger, John Hopkins Hospital. Uh, welcome. Thank you both very much indeed for agreeing to do this. Dr. Backrack, please, would you like to start by giving a resume of the paper? I'd be happy to. This was a retrospective review looking at 25 children with cerebral palsy that we had treated with pomidronate. These were children who were treated between January of 1997 and August of 2006, and we followed them into late 2007. So some children were followed for as much as 10 and a half years, others for just a year or two. This was a high-risk group of children in terms of uh, fractures. They all were at GMFCS level four or five, and all had experienced at least one non-traumatic fracture, and the range of fractures was from one to 11 fractures uh, prior to treatment. They also had all had a DEXA scan and all had low bone mineral density with Z-scores below minus 2.0 in the uh, lateral distal femur. The treatment was three doses of pomidronate on three consecutive days at a dose of one milligram per kilogram per dose, repeated every three to four months for a total of 15 doses, uh, and it was averaged over about 13 and a half months. We then followed them uh, with DEXAs and clinically and followed their uh, fracture rate as well. Because this was such a high-risk group, the fracture rate was much higher than even in, if you look at all children with cerebral palsy, what's described as a 4% per year fracture rate in children with cerebral palsy, and 7% if they've already had at least one fracture. This group, again, was a, a particularly high-risk group, and so their fracture rate was 30.6% per year in the time prior to their treatment. Following treatment and really following the initiation of treatment, so from the first dose that they received, we followed their fractures. And of the 25 children, eight of them had fractures subsequent to receiving pomidronate, and 17 had none in the follow-up period. And again, the longest was 10 and a half years without a fracture. Of the eight children uh, who had fractures, um, they had a total of 14 fractures. So for the group overall, the fracture rate was 13% per year. And this was a statistically significant decrease in the rate of fracture. The group that had fractures included some who fractured during the treatment, so before they had received the full 15 doses of pomidronate. The uh, DEXA measurements uh, that we did not necessarily do in all the patients, but uh, similar to what we had published before, the bone density improved during the year of treatment and for perhaps six months after treatment ended, and then uh, within two years, it's back to baseline. It actually falls again following the end of treatment. Despite that, the uh, fracture rate did decrease, and we think that's because their pomidronate remains. We know pomidronate remains in bone for many years, and it clearly has some kind of a protective effect against fractures, despite the fall in the bone density back to where it was before treatment ever started. I think I can stop there, and, and then we can discuss the paper further. Yes, uh, Dr. Shapiro, did you want to add any points about the paper? Yes, I think this is a useful study for individuals treating these patients 
to read because there's not a lot of information out there. Every bit of information that does come in uh, is very useful. One of the issues we look at, and I would ask Dr. Bachrach for his experience, although it's not in this paper, but uh, related to it, I believe, and that is whether in deciding who to treat, aside from the uh, fr previous fracture history, how would one approach the patient who has not had fractures? That's question number one. And number two is what is Dr. Backrack's experience with the measurement of bone biomarkers as a guide to who should be treated in this manner? Thank you. In terms of who to treat, my practice has been not to treat someone just based on the bone density itself. If we look at children who are non-ambulatory, who are in wheelchairs, whether it's with cerebral palsy or Duchenne's muscular dystrophy or spina bifida, they all have been shown to have low bone density. We're not terribly good at predicting who's going to have fractures. And so, as I say, my practice has not been to treat children without fractures, despite the low bone density. In that population, we will make sure that they're getting the adequate intake of calcium and phosphorus, that their vitamin D levels are at least at 32. We try to get them standing as much as they'll tolerate in a, a stander or, or a walker, with the hope that those things will provide some a stabilization or maybe even improvement in their bone density without going on to fracture. Once they've had a fracture, then I certainly do have a conversation with the family. Again, if it's somebody who I've not treated before, not seen before, and we haven't adequately addressed their mineral intake and their standing and so on, we will do so then. And so even after a fracture, if, if they come to me at that point, I will try to maximize their mineral intake and their vitamin D levels and so on. But for most of the patients, after a second fracture, we do know that the risk of further fractures goes up once they've had their first fracture. And so at that point, if we've maximized everything else, or if it's a child who simply cannot stand, then I at least talk to the families about the use of bisphosphonates and specifically pomidronate. In the older children, the children who are approaching 18 to 20 years of age, we have used oral bisphosphonates, but in the children under 18, we've used IV pomidronate. In terms of biomarkers, I have not used those clinically. In our original study, when we looked at pomidronate 10 or 12 years ago, we used biomarkers to assess the effects of the pomidronate and to also just monitor them over time, but we have not used that in a clinical way. An issue which is outstanding in other related areas involves the question of the effectiveness of oral bisphosphonates for example, alendronate or residronate in some disorders. And there really is no, uh, to my knowledge, experience with oral agents specifically in patients with cerebral palsy. There are pa papers in non-ambulatory patients with spinal cord injury. And for example, with osteogenesis imperfecta, the results with oral agents in some of the in the other areas is very variable and we find that there are times when we have to advise using oral agents rather than an intravenous agent either pomidronate or a newer agent zoledronic acid but we do so with some reservation about the effectiveness of the oral agent 
and I agree that we would generally try to go to an intravenous agent, plus the fact that some of these children have difficulty swallowing pills. And many of them have severe reflux. That's right, and or they may have a, a, a G2. With reference to uh, biomarkers, again, there's not a lot of data, although if bone biomarkers such as C-telopeptide or N-telopeptide levels, alkaline phosphatase and osteocalcin were severely depressed, we would be a little hesitant to use a bisphosphonate if that were the case. As I think you point out, most of these kids have relatively high bone turnover so that the bisphosphonate would be more indicated in order to, to lower that rate of bone turnover. The quandary we face and have not really resolved is where one finds a significantly low DEXA value, either for bone density or bone mineral content in the hip or distal femur, where that number is obviously very low and where I think there is an increased risk of fracture. Again, we don't have adequate data. We have a, an experience that says in some of these kids as we've watched them, where they have not had a fracture, over some period of time, indeed, they do fracture. But it's very hard to predict that. I believe that uh, Dr. Henderson at the University of North Carolina has constructed a risk estimate, a chart, related to the distal femur measurement, but that's not at the moment widely available. Were it available, it would be very useful. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I think there are times when I've been faced with a family who said to me, why should we wait for that fracture to get treated if we know that the child's at risk? Uh, we didn't include it in this paper, but we certainly have treated some children who have very low bone density but have not had a fracture yet, and it's a, it's a fair point. I think that what you're referring to, there, there is a paper that was published by Dr. Henderson just this year in March at, in the JBMR that does give the relationship between the risk of fractures and the bone density in the distal femur and basically shows an increased risk of 6 to 15% in risk of fracture for each 1.0 decrease in the BMDZ score. That's very helpful and I think should be helpful to the audience at large and would be a step in the right direction relative to the information that you provide in terms of fracture risk when there's very high bone turnover, as in the population you study. I think the other issue we, we continue to struggle with is when to stop treatment. Uh, again, in this particular group, we only treated for one year or 15 doses. It's not clear to me how to predict who needed longer treatment. Clearly, our, a subgroup of this population did need to be treated longer, and when we stopped, they began fracturing again. Two-thirds did not and did very well with just that one year of treatment. And how to pick out who who those were who who needed more treatment and who did not, I don't have the answer to at the moment, but that would be very helpful to know. Would you find a change and or plateau in bone density uh, values as an as a an index as to when to stop treatment? In this group, we did not find a correlation between those, between the bone density and the risk of continuing the fracture or not. You know, some have a very dramatic improvement in bone density and others just a modest increase. 
but there wasn't a very good correlation between the change in bone density and the risk of going on to fracture again in the future. Uh, let me sample your experience of the children who don't respond to this treatment. Do you have any thoughts on what the factors would be in those children that would limit their response to bisphosphonate? Again, we were not able to identify, not by age. I mean, we certainly wondered about things like age or, or gender and so on, but we were not able to identify specific criteria that would have picked them out in advance to say who was going to respond and who is not. What we have been doing now is treating longer in those children who, who fracture. So, for instance, if somebody fractures while they're being treated, and I still have that happen, I will extend the treatment so that they, they go at least one year beyond the date of their fracture before we stop the pomidronate. The other thing I've started to do now is to taper the, the end of the treatment. So instead of stopping abruptly as we did back then, I'll now do it more gradually with the thought that there may be a, a less of an abrupt change in the quality of the bone between the time when they're getting pomidronate and the time when it stops. What is your impression of the role of puberty in fracture rate in this particular population? In other words, if you've been able to follow somebody, you know, through puberty or as the group as a whole, does the fracture rate decrease following puberty in this group as opposed to some other genetic or metabolic disorders? No, it does not seem to, at least in the in the children that we followed. And, we, and in this paper, we included a, a graph of children with CP who had a fracture, both those who were treated and separately looking at those who were not. And the fracture rate is pretty much steady across the ages up through the age of 20, which is when we stopped seeing these children, as opposed to the normal population where the fracture rate goes down during puberty. We do not see that in this population. Right. Can I ask a question, please? Um, were there any adverse effects from the treatment in the children? As has been described by you know many people who use these drugs, the, the most common is the acute reaction with the first course of treatment. About 25% of the children get a fever and muscle aches, some bone pain, described almost like a flu-like syndrome. And that comes with the first set of treatments. And by the time we bring them back for the second set three months later, that seems to go away. And three-quarters of the children don't even get it the first time. The other common effect is to see a drop in the serum calcium and phosphorus. Almost always that's a very modest drop. And sometimes we ask them to take some extra calcium by mouth. We used to follow that as an outpatient a week later just to make sure it came back to normal, but it uniformly does come back to normal within just a few days to a week. So we stop following unless it's a significant drop. The occurrence of low calciums of any clinical significance is largely restricted to individuals who have very low vitamin D levels. Uh, other than that, our experience is the same as yours. We really don't see that that has any clinical importance. Yeah, and actually that's a, a good point to emphasize is that we always make sure that the children have an adequate vitamin D level before we start treatment. So for those who are who have not been using these medications before, that's an important point. Do you check calcium vitamin D before giving treatment or with some of these children, would you routinely recommend treatment anyway with additional calcium and vitamin D? We routinely, for all our children, make sure that they're getting adequate calcium and phosphorus intake in their diet or supplement them if they're not. And we do check vitamin D levels. But certainly before we start the pomidronate, uh, I don't check it with every dose, but uh, before we start the, the, the course, we make sure that their vitamin D level is, is adequate.
for the reasons that Dr. Shapiro mentioned, that you can get significant hypocalcemia in a child who's deficient in vitamin D. Thank you. Do you want to comment on that, Dr. Shapiro? Well, no, I, I agree with that. Uh, I think that's very useful. I would point out that our experience with vitamin D supplementation is that it tends to be very variable from one of these patients to the other, and one can never quite predict exactly what standard dose would bring the blood level above 32 nanograms per mil or 80 millimoles per liter, I believe that's the conversion that's used, for example, overseas. As I mentioned a minute ago, we have been following uh, bone biomarkers, but we really don't have that data available as yet in this population. It is, however, fair to say that, as Dr. Backrack's paper points out, bone turnover is almost uniformly going to be elevated in this population in this age range. Thank you. Was there anything else particularly that you'd like to flag up or mention? Well, one point I would mention that we see is that when you try to get DEXA scans on this population, including the distal femur, sometimes it's hard to do because these patients have contractures and to get them in the proper position for a DEXA study is sometimes very difficult. And I would caution readers when they think of doing exactly what Dr. Backrack has proposed, that they look carefully at the DEXA values and they understand the accuracy of the values depending on the difficulty in, in getting those measurements in, that, in those patients. And are normal values available as well, control values? The normal values have been published. They've been out for about almost two years now. They were published by the group at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. I would suggest that individuals interested in getting involved more with these patients in their treatment become familiar with those standard values. Thank you. And that, does that apply to every machine? You don't have to calibrate each machine individually. That's a good point. Those values, I believe, were on a Hologic machine. Yes, they were. Uh, and certainly the numbers are going to be different depending on which machine you're using. So that certainly is a consideration that the user has to be aware of as one looks at these numbers and makes decisions about whether to treat or not, if one is even going to use that DEXA as a primary indication for treating as opposed, for example, to fracture incidents, which Dr. Bachrach has uh, stressed. Thank you. Dr. Bachrach, is there anything you, you would like to add as well? Just in that last point that Dr. Shapiro made about the DEXA, I agree that because of the contractures, some of these children are hard to measure. The lateral distal femur was actually designed for this population because getting hip data was even harder because they often have metal in their hips and or because of their contractures. So we have found that the lateral distal femur is obtainable for just about all of these patients, though it does take some training of the x-ray technicians in, in the technique, but that it, it does give us useful information. And in fact, this is the area that tends to fracture. The, the over 70 to 80% of our patients, when they have fractures, it's in their lower extremities. So that's the area of most interest to us. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. And any final comments from Dr. Shapiro? No, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to have discussed this.
Thank you. It's been extremely interesting, very informative. I'm very grateful indeed.